The Women in Agile podcast series amplifies the voices of outstanding women in the Agile community. We are dedicated to sharing the wisdom and inspiration our community has to offer by telling our stories, being thought leaders, and having open conversations with our allies. This series is brought to you in partnership from the Women in Agile organization and Accenture Solutions IQ. Hey everyone, Natalie Warner here, the President and Executive Director of Women in Agile Org. I wanted to thank you for listening to this episode of the Women in Agile podcast series. We're thrilled to have this as a platform to showcase the wisdom of our community. We'd love to get your help to amplify the reach of the series by asking you to go over to iTunes in order to rate and review us. After you're done, take a screenshot of your rating and review. Then post a screenshot to Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn and tag hashtag Women in Agile. If you do this, we'll not only reshare your post, but also add you to a monthly drawing to receive a Women in Agile goodie bag filled with WIA stickers and other treats. Thanks for listening. Hello, welcome to another episode of the Women in Agile podcast series. I'm your host, Leslie Morse, and I'm honored to be chatting with Cheryl Hammond today. She is a self-proclaimed person that is obsessed with lean and agile and has been referred to as a change agent of chaos. Why chaos? Because she just delights in upending conventional wisdom and showing people new ways to think about and more importantly, love their everyday work. Uh, we're also really thrilled that Cheryl has served uh, on the larger women in agile operations team uh, for the past few years and specifically chaired the 2019 and 2020 annual women in agile conference sessions. So Cheryl, one, thank you for all of your service to our organization, our community. Thank you for being here today. Congratulations on a recent like excellent virtual conference in the middle of a pandemic. So like all the things for you today. Thank you so much. I think we were so excited about what the virtual conference evolved into and the things it was possible for us to do in the virtual format that wouldn't have worked in person. And so it's it's heartening to be able to pull those opportunities out of what is otherwise this incredibly stressful situation and yeah. to find ways of supporting and sharing a, a lot of really joy with each other. Yeah, it was there. Um, even though we weren't in the room together, I still got a lot of the same goosebumps and joy and satisfaction that I have the prior years when I have had the luxury of being in the room. Yep. 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 It was great. It was, was great. Like, Wait, I'm MC. They can't be seeing me dabbing my eyes right now, but I can't turn my camera off either. No, but that is so real. We should see that. (laughs) (laughs) We should. We should. Awesome. Well, listen, But um, again, thank you for being here for this episode. Um, There are so many things. We could record just us talking, I think, for an entire day, but we won't subject listeners to that. Um, That would not make for good podcasting. But I do want to just capture a touch of the snapshot of kind of your history and your experience in our industry, Um, because there's going to be people that aren't aren't familiar with you, even as involved as you are. So, like, how did you find Agile? I... I was working at the University of Washington. I was a software developer there for more than 10 years in their central IT department. And our team was doing, um, years ago, Gartner said that the the chief competitor to Agile wasn't actually Waterfall. It was, we don't have any particular process, which was exactly what we were doing. We just didn't have anything in particular. And we had all the usual struggles with shipping software that you would expect to have. 
long planning cycles and change would keep happening and disrupt all these things that we thought we had in play. And our team hired a certified scrum master and I wasn't familiar with Agile at all. She came in as a business analyst and really started to whip us into shape in terms of working in these shorter iterations and having these more defined roles. And at that time, I was moving from being a, a peer software engineer to being in a lead role. And so I had the, the great fortune of being able to work with her. And also then we started looking at, okay, well, what trainings can we get and what else can we learn? And adopting both, at that time we had my team trying to adopt something Scrum-like and a team next to us that had explicitly decided to go with Kanban, which was brand new at that time. And we collectively recognized that there were elements of both that were going to serve us really well. And so we kind of self-served Scrumbon in some very early days before that was a thing and got so much out of it as a team. And it so much made it, for all those years that I had been trying to deliver software, I kept being frustrated at the things outside of the tech that were preventing us from shipping product. Yeah. And when we discovered this way of working iteratively that was allowing us to get product out the door and not be blindsided by these late breaking bugs that would you know, delay release for months and months and months and, and just were embarrassing, right? It allowed us to improve our quality. It allowed us to upskill our teams. It allowed us to satisfy our customers. It was like all the marbles. And we learned how to do that in a highly regulated environment under oversight from Washington State, who were sending people from Olympia to check up on our progress every month. And being able to pull all of those pieces together with the help of a really good I and mean, an agile partner um, really changed the trajectory of how I interfaced with tech. It made me want to go and solve the, the organizational impediments and mm -hmm. allow those people who really wanted hands on keyboard to be more successful and to focus more on their code. And that symbiotic relationship has kind of been the whole rest of my career. Yeah, that's so... I love the way that you point to that calling of, I was really drawn to work on creating the container in an organization where agilists can thrive. It's yes. kind of what I'm hearing you say. Exactly. Like, what what was this. it about that? Well, we talk about being like the modern day parlance that we didn't have back then was being like a 10X developer. And what I discovered was that in a, in a servant leader role, I could make 10 developers more effective individually than I ever had been. Mm -hmm. And so then I am far exceeding 10x in terms of my collective productivity. And they are typically really happy to, we, we used to call me the person who sacrificially went to the meetings so that no one else in the team would have to. Yeah. And I still stayed close enough to the tech to be able to be a good representative and a good advocate for the people who were working on the tech. So I understood the architecture. I understood the data models. I understood what we were trying to achieve. And as new tech became available, as DevOps became a thing, like I've stayed in touch with those roots because having that knowledge makes me more credible and more effective. And I have 100. had hands on keyboards, right? Yeah. I have done coding projects. I have shipped software within the last couple of years. It's not, you know, I'm not an architect. It's not fancy software, but I do some and being able to 
to operate in both worlds, I think, again, it, it's that the, the symbiotic nature of that relationship. It's when I do my thing correctly, the engineers that I am working with and near recognize that what I'm doing is helping them. Yeah. And if that, if I don't see that, it means I need to work harder to figure out what helps them. Yeah, yeah. Right? I'm not trying to impose I, something on them. I'm trying to help them do a thing that they want to do. Yeah, and I think that's actually such such an important point. Um, I was having a, a conversation with a woman the other day who's a school teacher by background, has heard of Agile, has heard of Scrum, wants to make a career transition. And she was just sharing with me what she's learned so far and looking for guidance on how to kind of get into this work. And she used the phrase, um, something about like um, making the team do something. And I said, like everything that you talked about around what it is you wanted for that team totally makes sense. And I said, so this is going to sound really nitpicky, but it's the word make. Because if you are feeling like you have to make the team do anything, that should make like the yep. ding, ding, ding kind of go off because it, it makes you question like, do they really need it? And is it is about them or is it about you? She's like, oh, I never thought of it that way. And it's so subtle nuances that are so important. It really is. And I think it has to do with like you just said, those words trigger our spidey sense, but they also do the same thing to engineers, ops folks, mm -hmm. product managers, stakeholders, customers, right? That if no one just, wants to be made to do anything, if we're a little off, or if we've come in hot with talk about values and empowering people, and then we slip, right? We're showing that we haven't really internalized those values the way we think we have. Yeah, and um, it's violating a psych an unwritten psychological contract that we've right. made with these people, right. right? It becomes an integrity issue, which which really is starting to point to where I wanna the topic I wanna unpack with you today, which is aspects of professionalism mm -hmm. in our industry. Um, but before we get there, I do just want to make sure we capture like, it, I, I thought it was also really interesting in your story how you said we hired a certified scrum master. At, mm -hmm. right, in a business analyst role, and she, right? Oh, heck So yeah. that first person you, ha you had the luxury of partnering with, that was a woman. So um, what if, what was that experience like? And what have you observed of the, about the role of women in, through your own experience and through your eyes, like since you've been involved in this whole Agile space? I, I really do count myself lucky and I give Gwen a lot of credit for kickstarting the career that I now have. And she's done great as she's done great things as well and has moved into leadership roles. And the the funny thing to me is that our our individual working styles were extremely different. I would go so far as to say that day to day we didn't always get along super well. But the combination, the knowledge that she brought to the team really enriched and allowed us on the engineering side to build up something greater. And we did we did some very cool things together that I 100% would not have been able to do on my own. Um, and, and, made, and it wasn't just me, right? But she helped upskill a lot of individuals in the organization as a whole. And bringing in just the fact that she had really strong knowledge, she'd done her homework, she was able to really talk about, well, you know, I've not, maybe I've not personally done this, but here's what, here's what it, here's what we were taught. 
these are the ideas that this is what we're trying to accomplish she was very good at explaining this is why you know so and, and it it gives credit to she did a certification path that i ended up not doing i ended up going the professional scrum route with scrum.org but i think both organizations when when they're at their best the folks that come out of those organizations because i know great people from both sides mm -hmm. the folks that come out of those organizations are able to explain all the way back to the original agile not just the agile manifesto but my favorite thing which is the 12 principles of agile software development so you know all the way back to some of those principles why is this practice the way it is and in the case of these orgs with their long histories now they are also able to say here are some iterations of this practice that we tried that didn't work and we've changed our language around this this and this because we've been inspecting and adapting all these years right but i think even back in those early days working with Gwen, she was very good at explaining what was the intent of a practice mm -hmm. and how could we manifest that intent potentially in a creative way potentially by doing something different um, she was the one who reminded me that the scrum master doesn't run i was trying to occupy the scrum master role doesn't run say for example the daily scrum but rather you know and we tried techniques for how do i take the focus off of myself and make sure that the team is talking to each other how do we make sure that it isn't a status report in an org that is very biased towards status reports what are some of those facilitator tricks that we can try and we worked together to try to really push that power onto the team um all of those were just such great lessons that we were able to learn together that's great how yeah. how would you extrapolate that to some of your macro views about um gender parity and equality and all of that work that we're doing as women in agile org um and just some of your thoughts on that i think from the very earliest days a lot of the thought leaders in this space have been women and that hasn't always been they haven't always been the ones who get the credit we certainly have the stereotype of we haven't been thought leaders in the engineering space which is you know provably untrue we have lots of we have a legacy that goes back a long way of women working is as computer scientists and engineers. Um, but even in those days of, you know, we what we saw in, and this is in a university setting that is actually trying really hard in the very early 2000s to push towards equity and inclusiveness. And, you know, in, in, in higher ed, they're, they're trying to be out front on something like that. And even there we saw, we had, one of the reasons I enjoyed working there in spite of, you know, massive state bureaucracy and all kinds of other organizational challenges was it, there are things about working in the public sector that are, are tend to be more inclusive. And I saw more women engineers there and more long, senior tenured women engineers moving into leadership roles than I ever have at any other organization in my career and more out LGBT people, and, you know, again, in the early 2000s, when that was not a given, that was something I had yeah. struggled with at previous employers. And so the just the, the the inclusive culture tends to then promote more diversity because it attracts people who appreciate a diverse culture and yeah. an inclusive culture. And it creates conversations that I wasn't seeing in with other employers that I had at that time. And so it did create this space for two women leaders, one on the business side, one on the tech side, under a project manager, also a woman, 
who was you know navigating with state auditors and shielding the project and you know tracking the money and doing all of the political fighting all the way up to a provost a university provost and a university vice president who were also women that's and, amazing yeah i mean it was it yeah. was a gift to be able to be in that space and i as i'm as i'm cataloging all this i think i'm not sure i ever tallied all that up before i have talked about how important that inclusion and inclusive culture was to me at the time but i'm not sure that i had really thought about probably how much it impacted me to be able to be supported and working with female colleagues and female leaders. Yeah, right. it makes me start really wondering about the the chicken and egg sort of metaphor that I've had with conversations with people. Like, are those most inclusive and diverse cultures what allows the women to get into those positions? Or is it because the women are in those positions that those cultures are so inclusive and diverse? And who knows which one comes first or how they organically emerge together. But right. that does seem to be a common pattern in all of those stories where people are like, and this culture was amazing. They're yeah. able to rattle off the names of women in very important positions throughout the entire org. I do have an opinion on the like the diversity inclusion chicken egg thing. Like I, I do come down on the side of when you create a truly inclusive culture, you don't need to go then do extraordinary efforts to ensure diversity because by being inclusive and getting that, you know, having that spark of, oh, hey, we recognize and celebrate, you know, not just the, not just the differences among white people, y'all, right? But yeah. real differences. And yeah. we really challenge ourselves to accept new perspectives it creates a place that is attractive for those who are marginalized elsewhere are always looking for some place that is friendly and safe for them to yeah. work right yeah. i have worked with transgender colleagues who the, the ability to feel safe and protected at work is unfortunately has to be their number one priority and they have to sacrifice work-life balance and they have to sacrifice money and a good company doesn't ask them to do those sacrifices but the fact is when they're looking for something, it has to be safety first. You know, yeah. safety, and then can I get medical care? Um, you know, and when we're when we're talking about opportunities for you know black men and women, they you can't just go do a diversity initiative to hire underrepresented people of color into an organization that is predominantly white and say once you get here, we'll start figuring out how to include you. You know, I think about in a, in a completely unrelated industry, I, I work with, I volunteer for my college, which is located in Western Massachusetts, which is not a lily white area, but it's not super diverse. And they really struggle to keep faculty members of color because mm. the community is not a place that people of color feel great about raising their kids. And I just think about the knock on effects of historical segregation in society and what that does, yeah. right? We talked a little bit at the Women in Agile conference uh, the Sunday past about the fact that a lot of times our professional networks are built out of our friend networks. And when we've created our friend networks in an unbelievably segregated society, like the United States is, typically our friend networks rarely include people of other races. Yeah. And even as a white person with friends who are people of color of a variety of races. I have very few people that I would consider close friends who are black. 
And so when I think, well, who do I want to recommend for a position? I realize, to my great shame that I don't know as many people as I would like. I don't have that network. Yeah. On the other hand, the network of black folks in tech is profound. And when you find it and you can tap into it a little bit, all of a sudden it opens up into the most amazing world of support and nurturing for its own community that, okay, it's there. We just have to figure out how to interface with it and how to welcome it because there is so much talent, so much energy and such a, a wonderful place to traverse. Like, you know, a few people and they know lots of people and you see this wonderful feeling of what we saw at the conference of people saying, I'm just so glad to meet other people like me. Yes. You know, yes. and that it, it felt good to be part of that space. Yeah. It, it, yes, totally. And I think being part of that space, creating the space for more of that sort of interaction mm-hmm. um, and getting deliberate about it, at yep. least in my mind, is sort of one of the things that needs to be on the top of our macro agenda as agilists. Mm -hmm. Um, One of the other things I've been thinking about a lot lately is the degree of professionalism in our industry. And as our industry is maturing, some of the shadows that come along with that. Um, I use phrases like intellectual appropriation, Mm -hmm. um, where we learn just enough about an adjacency and we kind of commandeer it as our own because we do that all the time as agilists. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Right? How roles um, can become commoditized or marginalized. Like, oh, oh, you're just a scrum master. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm I'm a coach. I'm better than you. And just like all of these kind of like, oh, I'm... Um, you know, safe is the right way, the way you're doing it's wrong. And all of these just sort of things that it's like, it just feels a little dirty. Mm-hmm. And, and what does it really mean if we really want to up the professionalism game for right. us as agilists? Because I do think as this movement becomes more popular, I think you talked about, you know, the biggest enemy of agile in that Gartner study was not waterfall, but it was no process at all. Yep. I think the biggest, well, I was going to say, I, I want to pivot it. The biggest enemy of Agile in my mind right now is actually really bad Agile. Fake Agile. Yes, it's fake Agile. Yes. Fake agile. Yes. yes, yeah. Yes. So, um, and I think professionalism in really holding ourselves as Agilists to a new standard mm-hmm. and what that means to us is probably an anecdote to that. And so you mentioned you happened to pick the scrum.org path. So you're now a new professional scrum trainer. Professionalism is a big word Mm -hmm. in that community. Um, The, what does professionalism mean to you when you think about the work we do in agile? Well, there's a really interesting history behind the concept of professionalism and I'm not deeply a scholar of this. So Folks will hear this and will know that I'm getting some of the details wrong. But at a high level, what I when I think about professionalism, I can go all the way back to when I first started in tech in the 90s. I was involved in some conversations about like the 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 role of the software developer or the software engineer should become professionalized. And what we meant by that at the time was the idea that, you know, traditional engineers 
you know, strict engineering practices or something like law or medicine or, you know, anything that can be tested and credentialed had professional organizations that maintained standards of what their members should be expected to know. And then if you interface with those organizations and you bring someone in with those credentials, you know, let us say that you're hiring a civil engineer, you can reasonably expect that they know things and have been checked out on certain skills and then you can call upon them to perform those tasks and you know that they'll be doing it with a level of competence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's like you were, you know, I want a certified public accountant to do my taxes, not a self-endorsed right. accountant of standard, because then I can trust my taxes are going to get done right. Well, what you're trusting is that they have been checked out on all the tax rules and that they have yes. continuing ad requirements, right? So, okay, that all sounds great. The, the Where we run into a problem is that if you look historically at some of the, the ways in which those professional societies developed in America anyway, in the US. Um, you look at something like the American Medical Association and it is, though it is true that they're maintaining and enforcing certain highest standards. And in the case of the American Medical Association, it was a big deal to move from not just folksy home remedies, but you know, but literal snake oil salespersons and the the old time kind of made up uh, you know quackery around medicine into let's have standards based in science and this was at a time historically when we were really trying to get our hands around what the science was which has some resonance for us in the software development field of what are we trying to standardize and regularize and what are we trying to say that these are now the non-negotiable ways in which certain things get done yeah. I see a place for that, right? There's certain standards of automation and types of, you know, iterative work that we do and, and types of types of testing that I, I still, I find out organizations are still doing this in some of these antiquated ways. And I'm like, what is wrong with you? Right? So I see the call for professionalism there and there was some benefit there. However, in the history of professionalism of something like medicine, there was also an undercurrent of this was an organization dominated by men that was coming in and seeking explicitly to unseat, remove, and replace things that had been done by women, had been a source of you know, career and community service for women for literally millennia. Yeah, it's like you talked so, about you know, like mid the profession of being a midwife. Midwifery was, yes. was the best example of that, right? You've got Literally, the human species owes its existence to midwives who were almost exclusively female up until the turn of the last century, when a lot of white men came in and said, we know better than you because we have science. And yeah. we decided that these forceps are a lot better than everything that you've been doing to birth babies up to this point. And in, that, in doing that, they were very intentionally putting a lot of women out of work. This was informal work that they would do for eggs, you know, barter for eggs or whatever, or, or for cash, but it was work. And it was ways that women were supporting both their families and their communities. And white men came in and said, we're going to impose a scientific doctrine on this. Of course, it's early science. It's all super questionable. And we're going to do it in a way that women are not allowed to join. Even if you wanted to learn about the science and learn how to birth babies more successfully, because Lord knows there was room for that. We're not going to let you do that. We're going to 
gatekeep and keep you from joining, we're also going to keep out all those pesky other minorities that we don't like. Yeah. And so, and, and in doing that, they're raising standards, they're raising wages, they're driving up the competition for folks with that set of skills. So they're driving up compensation, which is something that resonates with the tech industry, but they're also displacing what was there before. And they they destroyed a lot of informal networks and created some adversarial relationships between patients and doctors. There's things in the healthcare system that persist today that are byproducts of the ways in which the medical profession was professionalized. Now, there are experts who know this field a lot better than me. I've read a couple of books, but to think about the fact that professionalism is a double-edged sword, and we see that in action, right? Mm -hmm. We clearly see that because the certification wars, you know, for a while it was between, you know, which certifying agency do you want to work with and, and who cares? They, all, they do such similar things. They came back together and held hands in Sun Kubaya a few years ago. Great. We all have the same scrum guide now. But... Instead of that kind of agile professionalism uplifting our profession and making us in higher demand for our skills, it seems to me like there's a certain amount of commodification that has happened that's actually downgrading those of us in the agile space. It's driving wages down. It's yeah. turning a lot of agile coaching jobs into contract work with just very low standards for performance where it's just you have this thing called a CSM and, and a PSM. But when you get the job that insisted that you have that, you're not going to use that, right? That's not the work you're going to do. You're not going to be working out of the intent of the scrum guide. I managed a team of people whose job title was scrum master. I'm happy to say they were all men. <laughs> but, <laughs> but those and those guys were they were great at their jobs. I said they were skilled agile coaches, every one of them. They'd been put through the ringer, being hired into contract positions where they had no job security and no the company wasn't investing in them. And they weren't even allowed to go to the company meeting. And it made me really angry. Mm -hmm. And when we got them in and figured out, I, I joined the company, I get to be their manager, I find out what is it that they do. And it turns out that all of them are being asked to simply be their team scrum secretary. Go to the meeting, hand out the stickies and Sharpies, collect all the stuff at the end, transcribe it, put it in this Excel spreadsheet, maintain, administer our JIRA instance. And other than that, sit down and shut up. Yeah. Don't try too hard to transform this organization. And we're not going to pay you very well and know you can't be an FTE. Yeah. And when I subsequently, I've been on the job market a couple of times since then, and I've said, okay. I have learned that roles that have Agile in their title are not roles that I want anymore. The conditions, you know, when somebody sent me a quiz to fill out to prove that I knew Kanban, and I swear, I wanted to write down, do you know who I am? And send it back. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I'm, I'm nobody, but, but for heaven's sakes, you know, that to me is not, that was never going to be a goal of what we would think of as professionalism, right? What we're trying to do is elevate what we do because we believe so much that what we do has value to organizations. Yeah, and 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 I think it's such an interesting challenge for us as women to navigate this challenge mm -hmm. with this, you know, hearing all the time, know your worth, know your value, lean into that, don't sell yourself short having to really kind of get behind that and be playing in a job market that yeah. is having rates pushed lower, 
-hmm. you know, things becoming commoditized. You also don't want to show up as a prima donna that's like, well, I'm too good for you. Right. Because that's an aspect of not being professional. And we know we want to meet clients where we, they are as well, whether they're that client's your employer or an actual client. It's really tough, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, playing the do you know who I am game is horrible. That's anathema to the, that's not the values that we bring as agilists to, to an organization. We want to come in and be a servant leader and be a partner. And there's, there's some aspects of that servant leadership that, you know, I joked a minute ago about my, you know, my direct reports being men and how satisfying that was. But there is a risk of as those jobs become less valued, more commodity, more secretarial, that underrepresented folks get pushed into those jobs in a way where their contributions are not valued. Yeah. So in a way where their abilities and the unique skills that they've worked so hard to develop in themselves, you know, the, the talent that they bring is not valued. And when, when I feel that being directed at me, it makes me angry. It makes me, you know, it makes me resolve to put even more money in my savings account because having the mad money, it has saved me a bunch of times now from, I don't have to put up with that kind of, treatment in the job market. I don't have to take the first job that comes along. And I'll tell you, I've got wonderful people in my life that were, you know, on the phone with me regularly saying, don't, don't, no, don't, don't take that. Yeah. <laughs> no, you don't, you don't need to make a living that badly. You still have, you know, you're doing okay. You should wait for the right roles to come. Yeah. And let's honor, like, let's acknowledge the privilege in being able oh to make gosh. that choice yes. that not everyone, especially in the current economic conditions, mm -hmm. like has yep. that luxury. Absolutely right. You yeah. Know, I am fortunate to have savings, but I'm also just by accident of various things. There are, there are financial obligations that I know lots of other people have that I don't have. Mm -hmm. And so I am able to put that money into you know, when I need to spend six months on a job search, I want to be able to do that. That's a priority for me. But not everybody has the ability to do something like that. So what happens when, you know, I have talked to, I'll say at least dozens of people who will describe a particular cert and say, you know, I don't actually really believe in that methodology. I don't like using whichever one that is, but I have to go get the letters because I need them in my LinkedIn because I won't even get looked at. Yes. And I don't want to work for a company that's going to treat me like that. Yeah. But if there comes a day when to keep my house, I have to do that. To have a place to live, I have to do that. Of course we will. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It, yeah. It, the economic pressures can be really tough on folks. And I think that does drive a lot of the traffic in the way we, you know, when certifications are used as a gatekeeping tool. Now we're back to talking about those worst elements of so-called professionalism, yeah. right? When it's used as a gatekeeping tool and you all, you know, you know when you're interviewing at a place like that, if they're hung up on the letters and they're not asking you about your values because they're not, yeah. then you also know, I have to go get this cert, but I'm also never going to use any of the things that I was taught in it. Yes. They're not doing any of the things that those agile values represent. So now I'm just doing it to get a job. And yeah, I'm when, to yeah, and, and it it brings me to another side of my personal 
inquiry around the idea of professionalism in our space. Um, I was talking to um, Faith Fuller, who was the co-founder of CRR Global, which is the home of the ORSC coaching method, mm -hmm. right? Organization Relationship Systems Coaching. And we was talking to her about the real intersection of professional coaching and Agile and Scrum and all these things. And she asked me a question. She goes, well, Leslie, which code of ethics wins? Because there is a code of ethics from the International Coaching Federation for what professional coaching means. And we have Agile values through the manifesto. We have 12 Agile principles. If you look at the Scrum guide, we have Scrum values. Yep. But there is no professional code of ethics. Yep that go along with agile. And as I revealed that to her, she goes, then why do you consider yourself a real profession? <laughs> and I was like, well, that's really interesting. Yes. And so it makes me wonder what would our code of ethics be? Mm -hmm. And I imagine it is in my mind, an unpacking of the human aspects of the values and principles of we do not marginalize roles. We, mm -hmm. we do not marginalize people. Mm -hmm. And that as agilists, like those, it's almost the human ethics of our work That's that I think are almost what's missing and holding us back, even though it's such a part of the DNA, we value individuals and interactions over processes and tools. Yet, the yeah. shadow side of our industry is all processes and tools. Oh, good Lord. I mean, you, I'm sure like me, have been in dozens, if not hundreds of companies where you find the room that has the Agile Manifesto on the wall and you can't but roll your eyes just because you've been there 10, 20 minutes and you already know they're not living it. And the reason it's on the wall is because nobody, no one would know what it was otherwise yeah. and no one cares, right? Like that's rough. Um, there was, I was really lucky to have, um, I want to say it was three years ago now, maybe four, um, when I chaired the developer practices and craft track at the Big Agile Conference, uh, however many years ago it was, we had a session by Chris Edwards and Sean Dunn that was on ethics and software development. And they brought a perspective from being uh, software developers, software engineers in Canada, where there is actually a certification regime for engineers that requires a certain type of ethics training. And they talked about some of those lessons in a way that was brand new for me, uh, being US-based, yeah. that I had never even thought of that sort of thing before. But it, it probed into some very challenging questions around, you know, what level of responsibility do you have for the thing that your software is going to be used for? Like, that could take us off into a whole other topic in the in the industry. I'm also thinking to last year, and this was a throwaway conversation in a group at a conference last year, but I remember hearing somebody who is more focused on the coaching side than I personally am, who mentioned uh, something about it being unethical to coach a person without their consent. Mm -hmm. And I had never thought of that before. It absolutely blew my mind. Yeah. I still think about it because as a consultant, I often talk about that a lot of my work is, I'll call it little C coaching. Yes. Right. A lot of my work is, and, and as we as an industry are looking around for the much needed new phrases that will replace the term scrum master, which has got to go, uh, a lot of folks are gravitating towards something with coach in the title, but I think it is a great reminder 
that coaching is a thing. Yeah. You know, it is a profession with a code of ethics. It is a real thing. Yeah. And I realized I have been doing things that I build myself as coaching that were very much like, you know, Joe's accounting shack. And we're not- It was the intellectual appropriation that I mentioned. Exactly, right? I'd like to hitch my wagon to these great people who call themselves coaches, but I have begun to learn that I've not done the work. I've not done the prerequisites to make sure that I am coaching in a way that honors what the coaches before me have learned through their practice. But I'll also say that there is a place for, if we want to use different metaphors to talk about coaching- where there is like professional, like ICF style coaching, where the client brings the agenda and all of those kind of things. Then there is what we think of as sports coaching, which really, if you think about the style of coaching that is most common for a scrum master to employ, Mm -hmm. employ, is much more like sports coaching. Mm-hmm. Where as the sports coach, you are an expert in that game and you are bringing out the best talent in the players. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes professional coaching where the client brings the agenda is needed. Right. So it's even like we talk about how do we navigate the stances, but now there's even multiple stances of coach. Right. right. And so it just gets complicated. I think so. Um, I think in in... A previous job, we called it enablement, which was a nice sort of umbrella term that we could use. My current role, we're calling it upskilling. Mm-hmm. Right? But it's it's still, that language removes us a little bit from the fact that ultimately what all of those things are trying to do is work with and support people. Yes. To do what you just said, which is bring out the best in what they can do. Yeah. Maybe teach them a few new tricks, right? But also traditional, meet them where they are, understand what they know. I always learn at least as much from the people that I am supporting and helping as they might do from me. Uh, They're the ones who know their context. They're the ones who know what they've already tried. You know, they're the ones who know what the self-styled coach before me did that didn't work. Right. So I'm, I am following their lead quite a bit and they know their industry in a way that I never do. Yeah. Right. And so it's it's that coming into that with the spirit of we're going to collaborate to come up with solutions. Yeah, is I just I found that beneficial. But there's so much more I have to learn from the different coaching communities and the different skills that have been developed over the years by people who really focus on this. I dabble in all kinds of things, right? You've heard me be I'm a little bit engineer in this conversation. I'm a little bit coach. I'm a little bit leader. There are times when I talk business and revenue and profit and loss. And, you know, there's just that I'm trying to learn more about sales. So I, I try to have my fingers in a little of everything. It took me, eh, you know, six or seven years to get my PST certification because I was just kept getting distracted and off doing other things. And I'm like, I just don't have the time or, or resources to put into that. The very challenging path that scrum.org has you go through to get your PST. And it wasn't until they rolled out professional scrum with Kanban that I said, oh, okay. And, you know, came and made an appeal. Well, help us, help us get this new program off the ground. Oh, well, oh, well now that's something, to, you know, that's something. Yeah, there's that, a new transcendent purpose involved. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. I felt yeah. a little more needed, you know, oh, yeah. Yeah, it, you know, and, and 
I've always been adjacent to that community. So I've always enjoyed being part of that community. It's, it's kind of cool to be like the real deal now. Yeah. Well, congratulations for that milestone. Oh, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> so, I, did, I did put work into that. Thank you. Yeah, you did. You did. You did. So before we wrap up, Cheryl, I want to mm-hmm. kind of just sit with this idea of professionalism for just a minute. And, you know, if you were to kind of write a postcard from the future, and let's just say that we're chatting after the annual Women in Agile Conference 2023, so just three years down the road. Okay. And you were writing back to us now a note on what professionalism is like. What, what are you, what would you be saying to us? That's so interesting. I think the thing that where we can capture the best of, right, we've, we've traversed a lot about what happens under the umbrella of professionalism. And so what I hope that we would find is that we've used that moniker in a way that is more inclusive, that it brings people in more rather than as a gatekeeper. Mm-hmm. And even if I think that such and such is a certification mill, or I think this person just pushed some buttons on the online assessment and didn't really, you know, that's that's not what it's about. It's not about judging people's merit or worth to be in the profession. It's about how do we uplift all of us and most importantly, I think, what what are we doing to embrace the idea of having some having standards for outcomes and having a scientific approach where we look at what is what has worked? We have a challenge in our industry that I think there's dispute over even what the word works means. Because Every consultancy has a case study that swears up and down that their thing had a fantastic outcome. And every consultant who worked on the project behind that case study knows that there's the the moment of, well, yeah, technically we did that. Also, these other terrible things happened. And here's the list of the dozen people who didn't get it. And boy, we wish we could have gotten ourselves to you know, this pinnacle of achievement where what we really got was about halfway up the mountain and then we had to come back for supplies or whatever. Yeah. Torture that metaphor a little bit. But but the point being, like, we have, there's a desire to green shift our reporting on success. And that that obscures our, our sight into which practices actually work. What does works mean? Does it yeah. mean, does it mean we ship software or does it mean people have a better experience at work does it mean we have higher quality what is that and of course that now oh boy now we're off into how do we measure all that but it it's tough to have a scientific approach which i think would be necessary to have true professionalism right to continue to inspect and adapt on the profession itself it is tough to do that when we don't have alignment on what success even means mm-hmm. so i perhaps that is the next essential part of our journey is to figure out what is it that we're trying to achieve? Are we trying to keep giant legacy enterprises in business long past their, you know, decades of relevance and is agile the tool that's going to achieve that? Or are we trying to do something else in the world of work for people? Yeah. And what does that look like? Yeah. And I think, I, I agree with everything you're saying, Cheryl. And I'd add on that 
And hopefully we can learn from our past. Mm -hmm. I am acutely aware of this um, shift in me around the importance now of understanding history Mm -hmm. so that we can make better decisions today, whether that be, right, my new familiarity with like how colonization is a thing that has been underneath the oppression of people in our country and how... um, the professionalism mm-hmm. of certain industries, even things like wellness and yoga and mindfulness oh and my. spirituality has been whitewashed yep. to make it seem more professional in quotation marks, right? But marginalized the real roots and where everything where it came from. So it's like, how do we become students of how professionalism didn't necessarily serve minority communities in the yep. medical industry, not make those mistakes? Yep. Um, and bring forward the best yep. of what we too do know is truly possible, right? That very first line of the manifesto. We are uncovering better ways of delivering value. I like to say value, not just software, by doing it ourselves and helping others do it uh, too. Because yeah. I just think that part gets missed so, so, so much. I have used that phrase to introduce when I when I go to a new organization or I teach a new class, I actually do lean pretty hard on that clause of the manifesto because, and especially as I've been in this industry for a ridiculously long time now, and I've worked alongside, you know, and the, the engineers who now get disparaged in the industry are my age. So I'm going in and saying like, you know, the important thing about that clause is by doing it, we are yes. uncovering these ways. We are not locking ourselves in a conference room and using sticky notes to argue about a hypothetical better way to do software. We are doing it and we are observing which things went well and which things should we do more of and which things should we stop doing. That's been our legacy since the very beginning, which means that before there was an Agile, there were software developers, software engineers who were practicing that before yes. it had a name. Yes. And it's not a new concept. Yeah. Somebody just gave it a name. And if we remember that that's been what has worked, right? That is a definition of work so that we can get behind. Yeah. That says we look at what went well, what allowed us to meet our objectives and what didn't. And we continue to take to use those learnings to build new learnings. Yeah. And, and I, and at risk of us going too long, I am going to circle us back to your story about the, um, the case studies and that reference, because it reminds me of something you and I had talked about before the episode, which was when you go into that large behemoth organization that's still working on whatever their transformation is. And I think the way you put it is, and I had to crawl over the bodies of all the failed coaches and consultants before me. There is some definition of insanity where we have our tricks and our tips that have worked in these organizations over and over again, and we just keep doing them and doing them and doing them. But at some organizations, we do them over and over again, expecting that it's going to work and it doesn't. And that fake case study keeps coming out over and over and over again. So that too is something that I hope in that postcard from the future will show up differently for us. I'm just, I'm reminded of my, literally I worked with, with one of the teams that I was leading in a, in a consulting engagement there was a day when somebody hit, hit me up on Slack and said, you won't believe this. We just found the folder with the leave behinds from two consultants ago. 
And they said all the things that we're saying now, and they're not listening to us either. Yeah. And, you know, we that was us not even knowing. But those were well-intentioned consultants saying what we would agree was basically the right thing. And this yep. enterprise wasn't having it. Yep. And so what they did was they let that engagement expire and they brought us in to repeat the process. Yep. And so there's something that we need to be doing and uncovering that doesn't exist yet. Right. And I'm yeah. so excited to what that's for that's what that's going to be. Yeah. Um, speaking of uncovering new things, two mm. kind of wrap up questions okay. that I've got for you. Um, what are you geeking out on right now in terms of your own growth edge or your own professional development that might inspire others for things that they could geek out on as well? Mm, I like that. Honestly, I have been I've really been in deep on improving my awareness of our our history and the contextual knowledge that I need to try to, to tune my thinking and, and do real anti-racist work. Like, you know, I read Ibram Kendi's other book last year, The Stamp from the Beginning, and the the definition that he provides of the differences between different, like softer forms of racism versus true anti-racism totally blew my mind. Like that really pushed me to say, wait a minute, wait a minute, you're saying I've been I've been trying really hard all these years and I'm still not doing good enough. And they, you yeah. know, there was just, there was still more to learn. So I'm yeah. really excited about his, his, his subsequent book that how to be an anti-racist is the one that it just arrived. It's sitting out there. It's sitting out there and <laughs> I'm waiting to read that one. Um, but it has been really inspiring to me to try to understand our, our nation's history and how we got to the places that we are especially um, readings I've done over the years about uh, Jim Crow and segregation and, you know, prison pipelines and so forth to really understand because we in the agile community think we're primed to think in terms of systems, right? Mm -hmm. We understand that individuals are oftentimes working as a product of the systems that they inhabit. And so we want to be able to take a look at those broader systems and see how they affect outcomes. Yeah. And so understanding things like the ways in which segregation was a very large, very powerful system that we have not fully dismantled. And you can look at, there's so much data out there to show the legacy of what used to be, you know, legal segregation, but is now informal segregation that persists to this day and what effects it has on, as I talked about before, on our ability to network and create job opportunities when so much of that is relational and we simply do not have the relationships to base it on. Yep. Right. And those casual yep. acquaintances is not the same thing. So yeah. understanding how do we create genuine relationships across some existing systemic barriers? Yeah. And so what I'm trying to do is understand where did those barriers come from? What do they look like today? How might they be either dismantled or climbed over? Yeah. Yeah. And I and I. Um, I'm noticing hesitancy in me around is what I'm about to say wrong, offensive, not going to be phrased properly and overreach. But I, I'm, I'm going to try it on and I'm going to welcome whatever feedback comes from it. But the more I've all too, I too have become a student of this and really learning the important distinctions between words like racism, bigotry, prejudiced, yeah. right? And that idea of racism really being consciously or subconsciously rooted in the perspective of, and my race is superior to yours. Right. 
can't help but think about how concepts like that from a systems pattern of thinking perspective show up in Agile. Mm. Oh, I'm in the safe camp. I believe my framework is better than yours. And I'm operating from that idea of supremacy Mm -hmm. and how just doesn't, whatever the topic may be, how does supremacy show up in your life Mm -hmm. is a really interesting inquiry. Yes. I think uh, Stamped from the Beginning, the Ibram Kendi book, really pushes you to think about ways in that much more subtle forms of supremacy, mm-hmm. that much more subtle patterns of thinking of even simple. So I think back to when I was a you know college student, teenager, and I used to take great pride in saying how much I hated rap music. And then I realized like that, that, that doesn't even need to be a thing. That's, that's a taste thing. But like, I genuinely believe, you know, and I've met, I have a musical background, you know, it just, you just think about these little cultural markers where you say, I like this piece of culture is superior to this other piece of culture. Oh, wait, what do those things have in common? And how are they different? Huh? Over the years, I see a pattern of I've been trained to think that these things are either the norm or better. Yeah. Well, they're all just culture. So it's all made up. So now I've got to interrogate that. Wait, where did that, where did that idea that I'm going to elevate certain things above certain other things, where did that come from? Yeah. Why does better even a concept? Exactly. Like, what does that even, what does that even mean? Why do I have an opinion about a particular type of fashion versus another? Right. And realizing, oh, wait, the opinions about which types of fashion are superior to others is something that is not just, you know, it is absolutely a tool of white supremacy, but I can also easily relate to the ways in which that's weaponized against women of all colors. Mm-hmm. And so, oh, wait a minute. Now I can bring that home and see what that looks like. Now let me try that on for, you know, women from underrepresented, marginalized groups. Yeah. Oh, look at how that layers on together. Right. And I'm, I'm starting to just challenge that when we think about the legacies of I bring it back to those legacies of segregation. A type of culture is going to grow up in, you know, this place that ha- that I have been isolated away from, mm-hmm. that I have not been had visibility into, and it has deep meaning and great tradition and has come from a place, and it is so much like we remember to meet our clients where they are and to try to understand where they have come from. I don't know that we always meet all the agilists where they are. No, no. And respect where they came from. I I totally, I totally agree. Um, Cheryl, we could keep going on for hours and hours. This is a long episode already. So thank you listeners for being with us in this. Mm -hmm. Um, Final wisdom you want to share with these folks? No, not for me. Go find it. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) There There is so much out there. There are so many wonderful voices. You know, we were privileged to elevate some, some amazing things. I would say my final wisdom is, please go listen to the speakers and the panel from the Women in Agile 2020 online conference. We're going to have recordings up within the next week, couple of weeks of those sessions. They were mind blowing for a lot of us. And it was just, it was humbling the way some, you know, way in particular black women showed up to help us understand the way that they experience our industry. There's so much there to learn. And I think not just listen to those voices, but find ways to bring them you know, to your workplace and to elevate that perspective and to seek out and learn more. 
Yeah, I'm so excited about um, firing off the emails to get connected with all those women and get them invited yeah. to be guests on the show. So I'm, I'm so excited. Everybody. That's my, that's my take. Yes, yes, awesome. Well, thank you, Cheryl, for being here today. I so appreciate it. I really appreciate your time, Leslie. This has been so much fun. Thank you. It is. It's a long overdue conversation. So thank you. It's true. Yes, it's yeah. true. Yeah. And and thank you for listening to this episode of the Women in Agile podcast series. It's brought to you in partnership from the Women in Agile nonprofit organization and Accenture Solutions IQ. We hope you've learned something new and invite you to tell a friend or a coworker about the podcast. And you can always go online to womeninagile.org to learn more about our initiatives and find additional inspiring podcast conversations. Thanks for listening to this Women in Agile podcast episode. Find more inspiring conversations by visiting womeninagile.org slash podcast checking out the podcast series on iTunes, or visiting your podcast application of choice. If you have an idea for a topic, speaker, or feedback on an episode, please reach out to us via email through podcast at womeninagile.org.